3, verses 1 through 6. This also is God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we go to our God and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you for the warnings that our Lord Jesus gives to his churches. Father, we acknowledge that we are prone to wander, that these warnings we ought to hear and receive. Father, we pray that pride would not overcome us, that we would have uh, humble hearts like your beloved children should, that we would hear your warnings and heed them, that we would believe your promises. Father, help us to see that oftentimes the path to error is a result of the successive uh, small decisions that are made uh, that are contrary to your will. Father, we pray that you would grant us a love for you, that we would desire to do what is good for spiritual life, for ourselves, for those around us, for those in our households, and for those in the church. We pray, Father, and thanks that your diagnosis is always accurate and that your provision is always generous. Father, turn us back on the path of righteousness. Remind us that we have a perfect Savior in our Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that he would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Here we, we look at the diagnosis that Jesus gives to the church in Sardis. There he says in the latter part of verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Here, knowing the Lord Jesus, he is not one who gets this diagnosis incorrect, that he is the spiritual doctor, and his facts, his data is accurate. You ask, How would you receive such a diagnosis? Imagine it came from someone you knew, someone who's close to you. Would we blow him off saying, what authority do you have over me? You don't know anything about me. But you think about how Jesus, he was in this world. He spoke to people. He gave such diagnoses to people. He he gave these diagnoses to the spiritual leaders, the best, the best religious people at the time, to the Pharisees and the, the priests, and they rejected him. They made all kinds of accusations of, against him, and they eventually murdered him. You think about it, 
Is our pride any different than theirs? You realize that the decisions that you make each day, either they are for the good of your spiritual life, or they are against spiritual life. It's toward your spiritual death. We make those decisions all the time. And what do those decisions accumulate to? Here, we ought to understand that in each of these letters, these seven letters, that the Lord Jesus gives an accurate diagnosis of his people. That in the life of a church, these letters could apply to any one of us at any given time. That we ought not to think that none of these letters, none specifically can apply to us because they actually all apply to us. It's so easy for us to desire the acceptance of the world, that we would be conformed to the world and the culture. Instead, the Lord Jesus is one who calls us out of the world, that we might walk in his marvelous light. And he's warned us, the world is not ready to receive us. They're not glad to receive us. We have to be okay with that. And instead of seeking the, the world's approval, you and I should be seeking the approval of our Lord Jesus. So we see the truth in this passage here, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Christ rebukes a church for being nearly dead from worldly compromise, but still he implores sinners to repent and return. Christ rebukes a church for being nearly dead for worldly compromise, but still he implores sinners to repent and return. We'll look at this in three points. The first, Christ's reproof. Second, Christ's remedy. And third, Christ's reward. So the first point, Christ's reproof. In verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In each of these letters, the Lord opens to the angel of the church of whichever place, right? And the words of him, and then a description about Jesus. Here it says, the word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We're reminded that the one speaking is not some uh, elderly person. It's not someone who came up with all kinds of fables. It's not some ancient writer. This is the Lord Jesus himself. When he speaks, you and I ought to listen. That we ought to be thinking, this is the one who has died so that I might have life. This is the one who has died so that you might have life. That when he speaks... We cannot hear it as pious advice. We must hear it as warnings and commands. We must trust in him. That the Lord Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now we covered this before. Someone might say, I thought there's only one Holy Spirit. There is. There is only one Holy Spirit. But in the book of Revelation, seven is the number of completeness. Jesus is the one who sends his spirit. And when he addresses the matter of spiritual death or nearly near death, that he is the one who gives life. 
He is the one who sends forth his spirit. That we ought to understand that. That he's also the one who has the seven stars. I don't know if you know, we've covered this before, but the the seven stars, either it's going to be an actual angel, like an ethereal being, like Michael, like Gabriel, or it's going to be another interpretation would be a messenger, simply a minister, someone who brings forth the gospel. And I, I at times have had said that it, it refers to a minister. It's pretty much split half-half, and I can see it either way. Uh, but here, Jesus is the one who has the seven stars. Here, we continue, and we think about how Jesus diagnoses your situation and mine, and he does so perfectly. And we would like to think, well, I'm fine listening to God. It's just that man's authority I have trouble with. Okay, well, how does Jesus manifest his authority? He manifests his authority in life in that you and I are all under some form of authority, many forms of authority. And how we respond to those forms of authority tells us how we respond to Christ's authority. Notice here in this letter, this message to the church in Sardis, what's glaringly absent is no commendation. In other letters, notice, Jesus commends them that, that they have love, that they have faith, that they have service, that they have perseverance, that their love uh, in the past or their love currently exceeded that of the past, that there was commendation. But as we look through these six verses regarding this message to the church in Sardis, notice that there's almost no commendation. Perhaps you can say it comes at the end, verses four through six, he commends a, a small few within Sardis, but he doesn't open with any wide commendation to this church. The rebuke that he gives them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Does this rank as one of the worst rebukes that Jesus gives in scripture? I mean, it's probably up there with the rebuke he gave Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? But here, uh, that they who think they are alive are actually dead. Dead meaning without spiritual life. There's no longing for God, no dependence on the Holy Spirit, no trust in Christ. These are all the typical things that we would expect for a person who is living to have. They have a reputation of being alive, meaning from a distance, from a distance, others look at the church of Sardis and they see what's normal. Okay, well, they have these normal activities. They seem to be doing all the right things. Sardis was known as a city that had exceedingly great wealth. And you can imagine, the city is exceedingly wealthy, then the, the, the people within the church were likely exceedingly wealthy, and there are issues that come with it. In contrast to them, you have the church in Smyrna. Remember, the church in Smyrna was the one we've looked at so far, where instead of having no commendation, they had no rebuke. Their situation was entirely opposite of that of Sardis. 
that they were living under great persecution. And because of it, they had lost jobs. They had lost property. Jesus said to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but in parenthesis, but you are rich. Meaning, in your poverty, you made certain choices to please Jesus Christ. And it resulted in your rejection and your reviling by the world. And what Jesus was saying to them is, but you are rich because you have exceeding wealth in me, in Jesus Christ. And here, the opposite, the church of Sardis. They have great wealth, but spiritually, they are dead. To others, there was the appearance of faithfulness. It seemed like their church activities were fine or good, but something was woefully lacking. The church in Ephesus was commended. They had commendations, but were told that they lost their first love. They lost their first love for Jesus Christ. And the result is that they would lack love for each other. And if such was true for Ephesus, how much worse would it have been for the church here in Sardis? Perhaps they started well. You think about how time goes. In the first generation, an apostle or a missionary came and witnessed to them and a church was formed. And then new converts were excited. They were active to serve the Lord. There were costs, expensive costs. There was much that was given up. And that generation, whether they had children after or they had children before, the second generation comes along. And they're not so impressed <clears throat> with the disciplines of the Christian life and the sacrifices that God calls us to make. Perhaps you're wondering at this point. Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Meaning that other people see, and they say, hey, this is obviously a good church. <clears throat> but then Jesus is saying, they're dead. Have you ever wondered, what kills a church? Or what causes a church to die? What are some of those things? Well, we can't address all of them. <clears throat> Generally speaking, sin... Giving in to temptation causes a church to die. Sin in the leadership, sin in the membership that is neglected, will kill a church. A little bit of leaven works its way through the whole lump. Worldliness kills a church. <clears throat> the accumulation of small compromises with the world will eventually kill the church. When a church loses sight of Christ, and the good news of Jesus and her commission, this will kill the church. When the church substitutes other issues as a gospel issue, which are not gospel issues, then she is choosing death. When a church does the service and activities without the right motives and desires, this kills the church. Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When a church focuses on image and reputation rather than substance, that it will kill a church. When a church neglects God's word and the means of grace, it causes the church to die. 
When the church is more impressed with the, the words of, of popular people than they are with the words of our Lord Jesus, it will certainly kill the church. Perhaps some of you are wondering, hey, you told me you were giving me an incomplete list. Yes, I am. I'm giving you an incomplete list. But some of you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what about persecution? Doesn't that kill a church? Last time I checked, persecution has never once killed a church. Persecution may cause a professing Christian to apostatize, but you ask, has it ever killed a church? And the answer is no. Rather, contrary to what we might think, persecution has the opposite effect. It purifies the church because the professing Christian who says, I didn't sign up for this. He takes off his garment and runs the other way. And in so doing, the church is refined. The serious people, those who are serious about the faith, well, suddenly, they start to become more serious about the faith. Strangely, if you have the freedom to share the gospel with someone, and uh, you might hurt their feelings, or they might hurt yours and reject you. <clears throat> There's somehow a huge barrier. But then when persecution comes and you share the gospel and you might lose your life for it, somehow it becomes suddenly more urgent to do. How that works, I don't quite fully understand. But isn't this true in the cultures, in the nations, in the people groups where Christianity, uh, there is the greatest hostility against it? that the gospel is being shared so readily. And notice also that regarding this letter, there is no mention of persecution for the church in Sardis. Why is that? The enemy looks out, and he looks at the Christian church in its various places. And the enemy will attack where the threat is the greatest. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who are eager to obey the Lord Jesus, his commands, who obey his word, who heed his threatenings, they're going to be a danger to the kingdom of Satan. At times, God may give you, may give the church a respite, but an opposition should be the expected norm for Christians and for the Christian church that is faithful. And apparently for Sardis, uh, the church in Sardis was not or was no longer a threat to the kingdom of Satan. This is why no mention is made about persecution. So this is the first point, Christ's reproof. We have the second point, Christ's remedy, verses 2 and 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. <clears throat> Notice that in the end of verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus, in verses 2 and 3, does not say, too bad for you, you're done, 
There's no way back. There's no hope for you. Those are the words of Satan. There is a way back to the fold. In any sinner situation, at times there are the seeds, the notions of repentance that appear in the heart. At times, a sinner sees that his situation is exceedingly bad. It's like the, the parable of the prodigal. The younger son is eating the pods of the pigs, and he's saying, this is horrible. This is absolutely horrible. This is, or, or rather, he's not even eating them. He's looking at them and saying, man, those things look tasty. And it's probably at that point he's wondering, huh, my father has servants. How, much, how many of them not only have nutritious, good food, and they have food to spare, and here I'm desiring these pots. Satan is the one who wants to persuade you. You know what? You're so deep into sin. God, he is exactingly righteous, and he won't receive you. You, you may as well just keep on going down this path because you're done. You've gone past that point of no return. You realize that is only Satan who says those words. In verses 2 and 3, though Jesus says, but you are dead. He says, here, we have a path back for you. You cannot listen to Satan and say, you know what? I'm going to hear him because he says, I have no way to come back. I've offended too many people. I've cursed the wrong people. I've cursed them multiple times. Here you think about the Lord Jesus. He says, there is a way back for you. There is hope for sinners. A sinner cannot outsin the grace of our God. Our Lord Jesus proclaimed himself as the Savior of the world. And if there's any sinner who is so great that Jesus cannot save him, then the claim that Jesus is the Savior of the world is false because there's a sinner that he cannot save. And our Lord Jesus never lies. Take note in these verses 2 and 3 of the imperatives that are here. <clears throat> First, he says, wake up. Other versions might have, be alert. Realize, with these letters to the various churches in these various cities, they're specific to their situations. Don't you think Jesus is one who not only is a student of history, but he's actually the one who controls history? It's based on the history of Sardis. When he says, wake up, be alert, you realize that Sardis, <clears throat> the name Sardis, is actually a plural. There were actually two cities. There was a city that was very limited in space. It was on top of this hill. And then there was another city about 1,500 feet below in this valley. <clears throat> so this hilltop city uh, had a fortress that there were vertical walls. And the city was thought to be unassailable. It was, people thought that anyone who attempted to attack it, that they would fail. Yet the fortress was defeated. It was defeated twice. So the city was divided between those who lived within those walls. You can imagine probably the wealthy, the powerful lived within that part. 
And then 1,500 feet below in the valley, uh, there were artists and uh, those with skilled labor and farmers in that, in that valley, they would grow all the food that they would eat in, um, in that city fortress. And what happened was there were two times that the city fell. The first time in 546 BC was by Cyrus. The Persian army was there. And the Persians were outside. They had besieged them. And they thought that the walls were unscalable. But then there was this one tragic incident. A soldier inside the fortress, he dropped his helmet. And it went down over the wall. And it got stuck on the wall somehow. Well, you think about they have, they have various structures. And then what he did is that while people were watching him, he crawled off the fortress and down to get his helmet. And he crawled back up. And then this told all the Persians, hey, this wall is scalable. So then sometime during the night, a handful of soldiers climbed up the wall into the city. And apparently he, they opened the gates and the city was lost, was defeated. And if this didn't happen only once, it happened a second time with another man, Antiochus. Uh, I think he was a Greek, but he ruled over uh, what was Syria in 214 BC. Twice the city fell. You think about the pride. Imagine our walls cannot be scaled. We, this fortress is, is undefeatable. And their pride. Don't you think any city with walls that they would have centuries posted? But they didn't. And this is why Jesus is saying, be alert, wake up. Here we think about how pride plays a huge part in the military defeat and the history of Sardis. Pride also plays a huge part in spiritual defeat. You think back to your own life. In any great sin, in any great fall, has pride played a huge part in your defeat, in your fall? The first step to defeat is thinking that you cannot be defeated. Jesus picks up on Sardis' tragic history, and he commands them to wake up and to be alert. Jesus said to his disciples, was it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In the Christian life, the scriptures address it in any number of ways. At times, it describes the Christian life as a walk. And it's true. It's like a walk. But at other times, it also describes a Christian life as a spiritual battle or a war. And when you think about the Christian life as a battle or a war, there is much to be lost or gained. Heaven or hell is at stake, meaning you cannot suffer that loss, for hell is an eternity. Nobody gets out. Jesus says next, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's saying, strengthen your weak faith and meager love for Christ. Strengthen your loyalty to Christ. 
You see that reminder in James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do we need to cover this again? This very matter. If you cannot be on good terms with both God and the world. If there are people in your neighborhood, in your, work, in your workplace, those who are sworn enemies, well, you'll see that it's very hard to be friends with both. You cannot be aligned with both of them. And then you have the world and you have God. Let me tell you who's going to win. God's side wins. But before that side wins, we go through that path of, as, as we say, before Jesus put on the crown of glory, uh, he put on the crown of thorns, put on the crown of suffering. He wasn't exempt from it, nor will you be, nor will I be. We have to accept that this is part of our path, part of preparation for heaven is learning to be weaned off of the things of this world, Learn, learning to be weaned off of the love of the world. He says also, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember then what you received and heard. This is the gospel. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believe in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. You heard the gospel and you were called to receive it yet again. That's a reminder to us. This, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something you once believed long ago. It's something that we're constantly believing, constantly going back to. Perhaps there are some books in your specialty, in your occupation. You think about what you studied in college or what you studied in, in your vocational school, and then you have your occupation related to it. There might be some textbooks that you will never turn to again. Either you've mastered it or you just don't use it. But let me tell you something. For the Christian, regarding the simple message of the gospel... It must be something that you turn to time and time again. No Christian graduates from it. A mature Christian is one who comes to see how important the gospel is. Because every time we sin, there should be a fresh turning to the gospel and saying, I give thanks to the Lord Jesus who graciously receives sinners and has paid for even that sin that I've just repented of. So each time you sin, remember the gospel. We think about the method of slight changes. A friend of mine, a minister uh, in our presbytery, he is, uh, he is working with some of these rural congregations in the mainline church. These mainline denominations that have been taken over by those who do not believe the gospel anymore. And as he's gone there, because they've needed need, needed pulpit supply, he's gone there and preached. And the comments he often hears from them is something like this. We have not heard that type of preaching 
in 15 or 20 years. And he's told them, my preaching is simple. I'm not, I'm not presenting my PhD material because I'm presenting the basics of the gospel. And they said, that is what we've missed for 15 to 20 years. Have you ever wondered? You look at some of these companies, these companies that make snacks or cookies or whatever. I, I won't name them to shame them, but you think about what some of those are. Friends who have worked in the food industry had said that for these snacks that have been around for generations, he said that these food companies have continually reduced the nutritional content of those products. But he says the taste has remained consistent throughout time. So when people buy these products, they would have eaten them as children, they've eaten them as adults, now they're eating them as, as uh, you know, even more mature adults, but they've always tasted the same. And yet, nutritional content has been reduced. So also, you think about the things that you hear, the things that you're taught. Do you realize what you're missing? May it not be that we're missing the gospel of our Lord Jesus. May we not move on from that in our Christian life. If ever we think we've graduated, we don't need it anymore, there is something wrong with our spiritual state. We indeed are dead if we think we do not need the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When he says, keep it, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. It's a call to remember God's commandments, that we would keep his commandments, that we would remember what he has called us to. He's called us to be a witness for Jesus Christ. That God does not allow us to be closet Christians. That the church is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. It is visible to those all around. Christ calls us to be a witness of the gospel. He calls us to live out our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to repent. Notice in these letters to the churches, the various ones, he's given them commendations, he's given them rebukes, and he's commanded repentance. The command to repent is so simple. Yet it's such a difficult command to obey. Because repentance requires change on your part and mine. And I'll admit to you, we don't like to change. We expect everyone and everything around us to change. In fact, you look at the passage we read earlier in Ezekiel 18. God is constantly asking the question, Hey, my people, you are saying that I am unjust? And he's constantly pointing back, no, you are actually the ones that are unjust. We make accusations even against God. God, your rules are horrible. Your standards are passe. They're old. They're, they're gone, meaning that no one follows them anymore. Well, this is all, these are all the statements that Satan wants you to believe. He wants, to wants you to think that you're no longer popular. Well, we never were. He wants, to think, wants us to think that, that no one approves of it. Well, even if no one does, is the gospel still good news to sinners? The answer is yes, it is. 
think about the command to repent. It requires that you change. It requires that I change. It requires that we say, here, the Lord Jesus has confronted us with our sin. What will we do about it? It's an acknowledgement of our sin. What we're doing, that, that, that is sin. Yes, God, you've condemned it. We ought to grieve over it. Not to grieve over the consequences. We grieve over the sin itself, that it is an offense to God. And that we turn from the sin. That we forsake our old ways. We stop doing the thing that is offensive to God. Instead, that we might cling to Christ. That we might cling to him in obedience. Lord, what I once did, I, I cannot do anymore. I cannot continue on in it. Jesus warns here. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Here, Jesus, in this verse, he is not warning the church of Sardis about external threats or Satan's attack. That's already happened. Right here, Jesus is warning the church of Sardis of his own coming. He's saying, I will come like a thief, meaning without warning. He says, I will come against you. Jesus is warning the church in Sardis about himself. You realize that. The Jesus who has commanded repentance and faith, who has provided them a path back. Hey, hey you, you veered off the path here. This is how you come back. Normally we would have expected the lightning bolt of condemnation. It hasn't happened. Jesus says, you must come back. But he warns them, I'm not going to tell you when I will return. This is a reminder to us. If you, were, you and I have this plan... Somehow, this room for continued complacency regarding our own spiritual lives, or I will, I will plan my repentance way out there after I've established my career and my nest egg is nice and big, I've gotten my children through college, then I will repent and focus on the things that are pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to warn you, that time will never, ever come. It won't come. Because then when you're retired, you're going to have to deal with grandkids. You have, you have all this time in the world and, and, and then you figure out that you can get so little done. Jesus is worth following. He's worth following today, right now. If repentance is the right thing to do, we must do it now. Jesus warns, you know what? I know how sinners think. He didn't say, I'm coming back in a particular day, a particular month, a particular year. Because he knows that we are lazy sinners and we will sit on our hands until it's close to his coming back. He says there's no warning. If it's worth repenting, if it's right to repent, do so now. Turn from your sins and embrace the promise of Jesus Christ that he forgives sinners, that he receives sinners. He warns Sardis of the coming judgment. It's not of someone else, it's him. He will come. He will judge them. So that's the second point, Christ's remedy. We also have in the third point, Christ's reward in verses 4 through 6. If you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will not, never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to a few, there's still a few names in Sardis. These are the ones who have not soiled their garments. Far be it from our God to condemn the righteous along with the wicked. This is the very conversation that Abraham had when God said he was going to condemn Sodom. And he started talking about the numbers for the sake of 50. What about 40? And then down for the sake of 10, God was saying, for the sake of 10, I won't condemn Sodom. Well, here Jesus is not going to condemn those in Sardis who are faithful to Jesus Christ. People who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white. The soiled garments is literal or it's figurative, right? So it's literal meaning the garments soiled in sinful activity or figurative meaning worldliness. He promises that those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus will walk with him in white. White symbolizes purity and holiness. Those who are clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about Zechariah 3. Joshua the high priest, he had soiled garments, his turban was soiled. And Satan was there accusing, hey, he's, he's a dirty priest. And he makes all these accusations. And that God is the one who removed his filthy garments and gave him a clean garment. And this is what the gospel is, that you who are soiled by sins can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be clothed in Christ's very righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees you clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This mention of worthy, for they are worthy. No one obtains his worthiness by works. Christ's righteousness comes to those who believe. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Who then is the one who conquers, you ask? We have a verse in the Bible that describes this very conquering. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is he who conquers? It is the one who has his hope and confidence in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who conquers. And there's the assurance, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There are some who use this verse, Revelation 3, 5. And they point to it and say, hey, you see, this is proof that God can, and he does blot out names from the book of life. I don't know where they see that. Jesus is saying, this, this is something that I will certainly never ever do. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So when he says, and they will never perish, does that mean that some who are Christ's sheep will perish? No, he's saying they will never perish. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Does that mean that, that 
The evil one can snatch Christ's sheep out of his hand? No, it means that no one will snatch them out of his hand. I will certainly not blot anyone's name out of the book of life. You see how people turn things around to mean what they don't say? Jesus says, for those who are trusting in him, their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. And then we have, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Isn't it a great thing when you have friends that welcome you into their circles? Isn't it a great thing when Christ, when Christ will welcome us into his heavenly kingdom? But I ask you, are you ever ashamed to be seen as one who is with Christ? Because Christ watches us. He warns us that we must never be ashamed of him. And the very description of the Christian life is that we who find our first and greatest identity in Jesus Christ, there's no possible way we can be ashamed of him. Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Christ promised for those who confess him before men. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10. 32 to 33. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered? <clears throat> if someone accused you of being a Christian in your neighborhood, in your workplace, among your circle of friends, what evidence would there be against you? Would they even accuse you of being a Christian? Who, who would know? Would there be all kinds of people who would say, yep, that person is definitely a Christian? This person said that he's been praying for me, and I know he's been praying for me. He's invited me to church. He's told me the gospel. He said that he is a sinner. He's saved by Christ, and that I should be too. You think about all these testimonies that would come out. Well, Christ asks, he wonders, are you ashamed of me? Because here he's saying, those of you, those of me who are ashamed of Christ, you will be ashamed before his father. But he who confesses uh, Christ before men, Christ will confess us also before his Father. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, he gladly, graciously welcomes you into the presence of his Father. We consider how this passage is of good use and instruction to us. It's a reminder to us that after pride comes a fall. This is true politically, this is true financially, this is true spiritually. If you are unable to receive a rebuke, there is something wrong with your spiritual state. Those, very interesting, those who are most in need of a rebuke are the least likely to receive it. May you examine your own hearts and ask, can you receive a rebuke from a mute donkey? And if you're unable to receive it from a mute donkey, then it says there's something wrong with our, our hearts. It's a humility check, this passage. 
Are we humble enough to receive a rebuke from Christ for yourself and for the church? We must ask the question, what are the activities that lead to the death of a church? You must come up with your understanding of what those things are. And you must turn away from them. You must not practice them. You must not do them. Those activities that lead to the death of the church. And we ask also, what are the activities that lead to greater or fuller life within the church? We ought to desire them. We ought to be absorbed in doing them. What are the activities or choices that lead to the death of a Christian? Are you making such choices each day? This passage is a reminder about God's heart. That he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires that sinners would turn and return to him. That he takes pleasure in salvation. It's a reminder about the path of return. There is such a path identified by our Lord Jesus. No one outsins the grace of God. And so Jesus commands to repent and return and trust in the Lord Jesus that he indeed is sufficient to cover for your sins and mine. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you.